0: This is Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine, and I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. This memoir is my experience of becoming a first-time mother and navigating the healthcare system for my son, who was diagnosed with a rare condition. We struggled with his diagnosis, his treatment, and a five-month hospitalization. As we nursed him back to health, we grappled with many challenging issues. We had many highs and lows, trying times, joys and sadness. We hope that you can find strength in our story. Being a caregiver and a patient and grappling with the healthcare system are some of the most trying times families can go through. We hope that you find inspiration from our story. We hope it gives you strength. Thanks for listening. Prelude, to my dearest son. I hope you cannot recall these childhood memories, but I will never forget them. They will sit idle in my mind, seeping and spilling over into my thoughts and emotions when I wake and when I sleep. The path to and through parenthood is by far the most challenging and trying time I have ever experienced. I wrote this so that when we rejoice together, Our joy will be that much sweeter knowing what we have overcome as a family. I wrote this so that one day, when these challenges have been long overcome, you will know the depth of our love and gratitude for health, for each other, and for you. I wrote this so that when you are a teenager and the apathy of adolescence is burning inside you, you can remember that once upon a time, I tried really, really hard. I began writing this journal for me. In the darkest of times, the pen and paper, so to speak, were my only solace. I continued to write it for you so that you would know your story, our story, and how much we have overcome so that anything else we face will shrink in comparison. We decided to publish this journal for others with the hope that other parents and children, other partners and families can find strength in our journey. If this helps even one person get through one more hour of one more day, we will consider it worthwhile. We remember the times that flew by and the times that inched minute by minute. We remember the highs of your first smile, first word, first step, and the lows of your hospitalization, diagnosis, and treatment. We are privileged to be your parents to call you our son, to see you get better day by day, to say goodbye to your medications and medical equipment bit by bit. We still have a long way to go, but we see it now, the light at the end of the tunnel, and we remember the days that were all darkness and despair. We dedicate this book to those who are currently experiencing the darkness, to those who are enveloped by it, to those who can't imagine a life before or after it. We were you once. Continue to hope. Continue to dream. Just continue. Get out of bed in the morning, put one foot in front of the other, and like the ants, continue to march. Just doing that makes you a very brave person. And remember, as Mother Teresa said, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. Hope. I wish for you your father's height and his kind eyes. I hope you have his patience and his diplomacy. I hope that things come with enough ease that you avoid frustration and worry. And that the things are challenging enough that you understand their full worth. The most rewarding things always come with a little sweat and a few tears. I hope you know how truly special you are how many miles were traveled and oceans crossed in order for your story to begin. And I hope you know how much you are loved and how blessed we feel to be your family. I wrote this for you on April 28, 2013. I was four months pregnant with you and I felt you kick for the first time. So teeny tiny, almost imperceptible. I was in corpse pose resting at the end of my prenatal yoga class, which I attended twice a week until another five months and 50 pounds slowed my physical capabilities and my will to be anywhere but floating in a pool of water. Those were the good days, full of hope and endless possibility. In the beginning, your father and I met on a hike in the desert. I was a senior in college on winter break in Israel, and an Israeli friend of mine from Brown invited me to go hiking with his friends in Wadi Kelt, a riverbed that meanders through the desert. Your father was tall and handsome, with kind eyes and a smile that drew you in. He called to ask me out the next day and took me to a restaurant on Nusishkin Street, one that no longer exists. Then we walked around town and sipped hot cocoa from Babette, a French waffle bar, the richest hot chocolate in town we walked to the old city of Jerusalem and scaled a locked gate to climb the old city walls. In a clandestine spot on the old city walls, our spot, sitting on thousands of years of history while making our own. Women have a small window during their lifetimes in which they're endowed with superpowers, the ability to incubate and carry life inside their own bodies the power to give birth, produce milk, and nourish a life. Five years into our marriage, I too was endowed with superpowers. And there you were, a teeny tiny dot on a big ultrasound screen. You were but a gentle heartbeat, and we were so excited to meet you. We called you Tulip those first few months as you were but a tiny bud waiting to flower, and our job was to water you. calm before the storm. It was a relatively quiet pregnancy, aside from the one time that we rushed to the emergency clinic for internal bleeding. One morning, I woke up with a little bit of blood and panicked. I woke up your ABBA sobbing hysterically. I thought I'd lost you then. I was inconsolable. We rushed to the emergency clinic, and when the doctor found you safe and sound, beating gently. I thanked God for saving you and promised that if I were lucky enough to be a mother, at the end of this long journey, I would do everything I could to protect you. Little did I understand how insignificant my power and ability would be, and how many millions and billions of things, large and small, would have to go right in order for me to fulfill that promise. The birth. Nine months and 50 pounds later, I was so eager to meet you. I enjoyed having you inside me, kicking in my tummy to wake me up every morning. Thump, thump, thump. I started calling you Kung Fu Panda. It was week 38 with Rosh Hashanah fast approaching. The Jewish New Year was two weeks before my due date, but your grandmother, your softa, wanted to fly in. She had the premonition that you would come early. We hosted a big family dinner on the evening of Rosh Hashanah, and even as I was hosting, I noticed that you were less vocal. I felt less movement and less kicking. I thought it was odd, but I figured that you were just sleeping. Then the next morning, you didn't wake me up with kicks, and my concern started to mount. Where were you? What were you doing? So we grabbed the hospital bag and decided to go and get checked. Better safe than sorry. The roads were completely empty, total quiet. The silence was deafening. The same way the roads are quiet after a big snowstorm in New England, where I grew up. Yet here in the Middle East, there are no snowstorms, just the quiet of the New Year holiday. With people spending time with their families, we sped to the hospital without another car in sight. We arrived at the hospital, and the staff admitted me as a patient. Took our vitals, did an ultrasound. They located your heartbeat and assured us that you were okay but you still weren't moving. So they monitored us for hours on end, still no movement. They stuffed me with sugars in order to wake you up. I have never eaten so much junk food in my whole life. They had me force tea, candy, Snickers, and challah with honey down my throat. They continued to monitor, but still nothing. Concern started to escalate. The doctor on call said that they were discussing whether to induce me with the possibility of a C-section or whether to send me straight to the operating room. They decided on an emergency C-section. They notified us five minutes before sending me to the operating room. A nurse started prepping me, and Softa came in to give me a hug and wish me luck. But the tears in her eyes and quiver in her voice gave her away. She was terrified. Scared in a way only a parent can be. Afraid to lose you? Afraid to lose me? Afraid, because once you are rolled into surgery, you literally have no control. A feeling with which I was familiar, and soon to be more intimately acquainted. Your Abba is the strongest man I know, and as he wheeled me through the operating room hallway in a wheelchair, I felt his feet drag. Even he gave away his mounting fear for you and for me, as he kissed me on the forehead with tears streaming silently down his face. We said a prayer asking God to protect us. I don't remember much after that. The operating room was white and sterile. There must have been a staff of eight prepping me in the machines. Everyone looked busy and determined, each focused on his or her own tasks. I thought to myself that it seemed like a lot of people for just one surgery. They put a blue sheet over my legs and the anesthesiologist tapped my spine. The room started to blur. I don't remember anything beyond that, except feeling tension, a stretching kind of tension, as if they were stretching my body to each corner of the room, incredible pulling, as if my body were a tent they were pitching. When you came out, I barely had enough strength to form the words, is my son okay? And then it went dark. shell i woke up in the post-op room i use the term woke up loosely since i think i just gained consciousness long enough to throw up the room was pristine and white with those terrible separator curtains that hospitals use to pretend you have some semblance of privacy the nurse came over and forcefully turned my head to the left so that i would vomit into the small liver-shaped piece of cardboard instead of choking on my own vomit For that, I was grateful. It was a motion that I would become intimately familiar with over the next few days as I began to recover from a surgery that literally sliced me open from one side of my pelvis to the other, leaving behind a straight trail of staples, like breadcrumbs, as evidence of the event. After a cesarean section, you feel like Gumby, no control over your limbs. To sit up? To move? To walk? You must learn again from scratch. I remember sitting on a plastic chair in the shower, staring at my feet. I couldn't reach them. It was too painful. I'd had months of not being able to see my feet during the pregnancy, and there I was, so close. I could see them, but I couldn't reach them. Certainly not well enough to wash them. As I let the water fall, I remember feeling humiliated. I had to call mom to shower me like when I was a child. And while I was grateful for her assistance, I felt my self-esteem shrink as I couldn't even perform regular daily tasks on my own. The physical pain was excruciating, but the emotional harm was worse. I remember feeling incredible guilt and humiliation that I wasn't strong enough, not womanly enough to birth you properly. As I lay in bed, not strong enough to walk, not strong enough to move, I felt like a shell of my former self. This was not the strong-willed, healthy 29-year-old I knew. I was different, transformed. Transformed physically by surgery, emotionally by motherhood. Little did I know that it would take me a long, long time to recover and again become the woman I once was. The amount of guilt and shame that came along with the emergency C-section was overwhelming and unexpected. When we had taken our prenatal class, we'd had an entire session on C-sections. I knew it was an option, but I'd wished it away then, hoping that it was a card I wouldn't be forced to play. When Sarit, my friend and first visitor, came to the hospital, she could tell that I was holding on to a lot of anger and hurt surrounding the birth my lack of control, my birth plans A, B, C, and D down the drain, my physical and emotional pain from the surgery. She told me, raisa you have to feel your feelings. Pushing them away to the back of your mind, ignoring them and fighting them allows them to fester. Take a moment, express them. Feel your feelings and whoosh, they'll fly away. Feel them in order to let them go. And I did. I let the emotions of guilt, shame, and disappointment wash over me. And as quickly as I let them in, they disappeared, off to haunt someone else, to haunt someone else who was denying them. Freshman orientation. The maternity ward is a weird parallel universe where mothers, young and old, are thrust together to recover from their respective birth experiences. Everyone is forced to stay two or five days for observation, depending on how traumatic her birth was. C-section mothers are assigned to rooms together as they need special observation and are compelled to stay longer. The official patient attire was a hideous pink pattern moo that had buttons strategically placed for easy breastfeeding access. All the healthy babies were kept together in the nursery for specific hours so that the mothers could sleep and recover. As far as nurses go, the maternity ward nurses had the least power in the whole hospital. They patrolled the ward, taking temperatures and blood pressures and doling out Tylenol like candy. I asked if they had anything stronger than Tylenol. They didn't. You could tell the first-time mothers from the others, as we ended up wearing the moo the longest. Some women bounced back quickly, and they were already comfortable in their own clothes and skinny jeans just days after birth. Others, meaning me, could spend weeks in those awful moo Because while hideous, they identified you as a patient, specifically a maternity patient, so that everyone knew just by your outfit to excuse your physical appearance and to cut you a large amount of slack for being overtired and depressed and for functioning at 3% of your normal mental capacity. You had just given birth after all. Sophomore orientation. While the maternity ward was its own universe that took some adjustment, the neonatal intensive care unit was its own galaxy and we were clearly outsiders. While Softa nursed me back to health, your Abba stayed vigilantly by your side. He sent me photos of you until I was mobile enough for Softa to wheel me over to the neonatal intensive care unit. Same floor, floor nine, but worlds away, considering I couldn't take three steps on my own. As I was wheeled into the hallway, I saw photos lining the hall. Photos of healthy children who had spent time in the NICU, sent in by their grateful parents. Some were of twins, some with before and after photos, but all of perfectly healthy children ipso facto. As we passed the photos, my heart was full of sadness and hope that one day soon we would be able to send in a photo of our healthy son, and this experience would be all but a distant memory. There's a big sign in red letters outside of the NICU that reads, entrance permitted, only for parents and grandparents. All other persons and family are forbidden. Of course, since Israelis are terrible at following rules, inevitably some of the families have three fathers, five grandmothers, and even children sneaking in to get a peek at their proud accomplishments. Often you would see parents holding up their babies and presenting them like Simba in the Lion King movie. While excited family members took photos from a distance at the entrance with their cell phones. Because of the strict visiting rules, staff immediately identified visitors as Ima, Abba, Saba, and Safta. And that's how you were called for the rest of your stay. I was no longer Risa, just Ima. And just like that, my place in the hierarchy of the hospital was identified. My disgusting pink Mumu gave me away, and I quickly became a fixture in the NICU, sitting vigilantly by her side like all the other worried Emas hovering over the 60 other beds lining the NICU. We sat by our respective beds poring over our children as we silently prayed to our respective gods for health, for strength, and for the day that we could take our babies home. It was quickly apparent that the staff had its own hierarchy. There were the doctors, nurses, cleaning staff, and secretaries. Each group had its own internal hierarchy, too. The senior doctors, of which there were four, rotated monthly running the NICU. The residents were the young doctors, each in charge of a number of babies, or as they call them, patients, and reported to the senior physicians. They were important because they were in charge of your baby's daily medical welfare, but impotent because they didn't have the authority to order or execute treatment without permission. The nurses' hierarchy also stemmed from seniority. At the top of the chain, there were the middle aged nurses with 30 plus years of experience in the NICU. These nurses got the best shifts, the morning shifts, and often the residents and even senior doctors would listen if they recommended a treatment. They were also the best nurses to get because they took the best care of their babies. The younger nurses were kind, but often less competent and less capable more easily overwhelmed and more often fatigued as they were forced to work the evening and late shifts. The cleaning staff, as cleaning and maintenance staff members often are, were invisible. They played a crucial but underappreciated role in the NICU, and no one seemed to notice or appreciate their contributions. And the secretaries, as they often do, possessed a secret power that enabled them to access and order around the staff on all rungs of the ladders, doctors, nurses, and maintenance alike. And by the way, parents and grandparents fall way, way below the lowest rung on the totem pole, even far below the maintenance staff. Yes, we the parents just created your patient, and yes, we played a vital role, but that is severely and immediately overlooked. Often parents were seen as obstacles in the patient's treatment, and they were certainly treated as such. At first, since they didn't bother learning our names, we didn't bother learning theirs. We called each staff member according to his or her appearance or temperament, whichever was more pronounced. There was Stringbean, a tall, stick-thin senior resident. There was Pompous, a senior physician who literally looked over or through everyone perceived to be below his level on the totem pole. There was Schlumpy, a senior doctor who was so unkempt that outside of the NICU, he would have easily been mistaken for a homeless person, but who was the most agile, adept doctor in the whole unit at drawing blood and finding good veins on his teeny tiny patients. There was also Grumpy, a senior nurse with an ostensible contempt for parents, but a secret gentle love that she showed towards her little patients. The list goes on. We had all the seven dwarves, a series of emotions, and a handful of vegetable names for the NICU staff those first weeks. The NICU is a sterile environment and must be kept that way for the health of the babies inside the unit. Visitors must sterilize their hands before entering and wear yellow or blue gowns that go over normal clothes. Initially, no one shared any of these rules with the parents, so most parents' first introduction into the NICU was taking three steps towards the door and having a nurse chase them out for wearing the wrong thing or failing to sterilize. I burst into tears the first time I was rolled into the NICU when a nurse chased me out for failing to sterilize my hands. As I began to sob, I told her that I couldn't get up out of the wheelchair to reach the sink and wash my hands. Obviously, my outburst softened her a bit, as she brought over some hand sanitizer. Mom then rolled me over to your station, or giraffe as they're called in the NICU. They're small, elevated rectangular beds with long necks supporting fluorescent white lights that heat the bed from overhead. And for the first time, I laid eyes on you, my little miracle. Thank you for listening. This has been Sugar, a Tale of Motherhood and Medicine, and I'm the author, Raisa Hacohen. You can find us on Amazon.com or like us on Facebook. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Leader and mastered by Keith Rigling.